an unexpected story out of the so-called hot labor summer. Strippers united will never be divided. Binge all four episodes of Imperfect Paradise Strippers Union wherever you get your podcasts. From the Munn Broadcast Center at KPCC, this is The Frame. I'm John Horn. On the show today, the coronavirus outbreak has artists, promoters, and festival goers questioning that old showbiz adage that the show must go on. Then how Haley Bennett's new movie about a woman fighting for control mirrors her own struggle in the film business. I've spent most of my career being told what to wear, where to stand, and from what angle that I look my most attractive. And I was never really encouraged to use my voice. And the L.A. band that's been incubating talent for more than a half century. All that coming up on The Frame. Support comes from Pasadena Playhouse, presenting One of the Good Ones. The ultimate family showdown is on in the world premiere of this new comedy commissioned by the Tony Award-winning theater. When the perfect Latina daughter brings her boyfriend home to meet the parents, her family's biases and preconceptions are put on full display. Meet your new favorite family in this laugh-out-loud, heartfelt story from Gloria Calderon Kellett, the co-creator and showrunner of Netflix's One Day at a Time. Now through April 7th, tickets are on sale now at PasadenaPlayhouse.org. Hi there, podcast listeners. Frame producer Julia Paskin here with a short note. After we taped today's show, John Horn left for a weekend trip, and then South by Southwest announced it's being canceled. John's interview with Variety Music writer Chris Willman was taped before that announcement, but it still gives you an idea of how the coronavirus is affecting the music industry. Hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to The Frame. I'm John Horn. Organizers of the Ultra Music Festival, originally scheduled to run in Miami later this month, have called it off because of concerns about the spread of the coronavirus. So what exactly factors into a decision to cancel a festival? Who makes the final call? And is it possible the Coachella Festival in April will soon be postponed or canceled? Chris Willman is a music writer at Variety. He's been looking into all of this. Chris, welcome back to the show. That's good to uh, bump elbows with you here. <laughs> Thank you very much. So let's talk first about the Ultra Festival in Miami and how the decision was made about that. Yeah, I mean, that's been an inevitability for days, but it was really only just today, Friday, that they officially announced it. But it's been in the cards for a while. And uh, the, the city declared that they had to shut it down. And that seems to be part of, uh, for insurance purposes, as well as other things, what festivals want is, you know, we want to be shut down by the city so that... Not just to pass the buck, but also for insurance purposes, and so um, you know, and, and it helps that in Miami the, the city is very closely tied into the Ultra Festival. Um, but you know, one of the things they advertise is something that's a drawback, which is you know they advertise, oh, we we get people from a hundred countries around the world, <laughs> and that used to be a selling point. Now, if you have a festival, it's like, yeah, we're locals only, you know, no problem. When a festival is making this kind of decision, there's the city, there's probably public health officials, there are festival organizers, there are artists, there are sponsors. How difficult is it to come up with consensus? Because there are a lot of people who say, let's go on with this show, and other people who don't want to be on the wrong side of history. Yeah. It's easy to say that people should cancel right away until you look at the effect on the, the local economy that a lot of these festivals have. And, you know, I was just writing about South by Southwest. Looking back on a story we ran last fall where South by Southwest was bragging that they brought $356 million into the local economy. Just a staggering figure. So, you know, it's, it's not just the festival saying, oh, we're going to lose a lot of money. 
it's you know the Uber drivers, it's it's the hotel operators, it's pretty much you know every restaurant owner and business in the city that's going to take a big hit on this. Well, and South by Southwest seems to be at a tipping point right now because it's not just music. There's film, there's tech, there's comedy, a lot of conferences, and some pretty significant participants have pulled out on the tech side, companies like Apple and Twitter, also companies like Netflix, Amazon Studios, Warner Media. Major record labels are telling their executives not to go. It's a big place to discover music. But as we talk, South by Southwest is still on. And a lot of it probably has to deal with something we talked about, and that is insurance. Who's going to pay everybody if the thing gets canceled? So how does that factor into how any festival makes its decision? Yeah. You know, I was talking with different lawyers and insurance agents, and, um, you know, they say that the sort of force majeure clauses in cancellation insurance, that a a major festival probably will have coverage for communicable disease, but that they would not be able to collect on it unless basically they're forced by the city or some form of government to shut down. If they just shut down because, oh, you know, people are worried and better safe than sorry, that's not good enough for insurance companies. We're talking with Chris Willman from Variety about concerts and other events that might be canceled because of coronavirus. So what about people who have bought tickets, made hotel reservations, booked airfare? What happens to them? I mean, it could cost a lot of money to go to South by. Yeah, you know, certainly uh, the average fan doesn't have cancellation insurance. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's tough, you know. Um, officially, the Ultra Festival is calling it a postponement instead of a cancellation. And they're postponing it exactly one year. So it's like, well, isn't that really a cancellation? <laughs> um, but... You know, they're in a situation where they're going to wait till announce till Monday uh, refunds, and they're going to try to offer people credit for next year as well so that they don't have to immediately give all that money back. I'm traveling in a couple of weeks to North Carolina to visit my son at Wake Forest. We're also going to go see some NCAA basketball. I haven't really even thought about it, but now I'm thinking about it because I think you spoke to a lawyer about March Madness and whether or not those games could be canceled. Yeah, are you going to be watching NCAA basketball on TV? Because in person, <laughs> well, so you think now, but uh, uh, yeah, you know, there's there's the very real option out there that uh, these will be played in empty arenas, just like we're we're starting to see overseas with sports events. So, so I'm thinking of one last venue where tens of thousands of people are in very close proximity for hours and hours over a weekend, and that is Coachella in April. What have you heard about? even some of the conversations that might be happening around Coachella. Yeah, I mean, it's a tough, you know, even more than Austin, I think the Coachella Valley depends on these three festival weekends every year. You got two weekends of Coachella followed by a weekend of Stagecoach with 80 to 100,000 people each weekend. And, you know, that that number sounds like, of course, we don't want all those people together. But, you know, if you're part of the local economy where you make, you know, 80 or 90% of all the money you're going to make all year over those three weekends, then you may still be rooting for these things to happen. So, you know, the uh, the local authorities are really in a jam because uh, people are going to go broke in the local economy if these three festivals don't happen. We've talked about fans. We've talked about organizers. What about the musicians? I was having a conversation with a couple of guys in a band the other day, and they said they invited a guest artist, but he didn't want to play because he didn't want to be in a room with a lot of other people. Are the artists themselves now saying maybe we don't want to come? Uh, 
Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I, I think this decision is going to be made for them, and they're going to be largely SOOL when it comes to you know getting reimbursed because um, bands can't afford to take out the communicable disease insurance that is a, an add-on basically to their insurance. And so you know the, the festivals have that insurance that the artists don't, and they're, they're not going to get their guarantee, most of them, unless they're really A-level acts, in which case they might have that extra insurance. And I'm curious, finally... What did your bosses at Variety say? I mean, part of your job is to go to places where there are a lot of people and cover these festivals and conventions and meetings. What's your feeling? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, all along I've been thinking, how am I going to take precautions? Am I going to uh, linger at the back of every crowd instead of getting into the uh, the pit, as it were? And um, But, you know, the, the tea leaves say that uh, this is not going to happen and that it's just a matter of time. And, and but again, it's a tough situation where if you cancel too early and everything kind of gets contained, then you look foolish. But, you know, we're, we're not headed in the direction of containment, it doesn't look like. And so I, I think what what people hate more than an event they've been looking forward to for a year getting canceled is having it canceled at the last minute when they're about to get on a plane. So I don't think they have till mid-April, certainly, to figure this out. Chris Willman covers music for Variety. Chris, thanks so much for coming in. Glad to be here. After we spoke with Chris Willman, the organizers of South by Southwest said they're canceling this year's festival. Coming up on The Frame, in Haley Bennett's new movie, a woman develops an appetite for some very strange things. Support comes from Pasadena Playhouse, presenting One of the Good Ones. The ultimate family showdown is on in the world premiere of this new comedy commissioned by the Tony Award-winning theater. When the perfect Latina daughter brings her boyfriend home to meet the parents, her family's biases and preconceptions are put on full display. Meet your new favorite family in this laugh-out-loud, heartfelt story from Gloria Calderon Kellett, the co-creator and showrunner of Netflix's One Day at a Time. Now through April 7th, tickets are on sale now at PasadenaPlayhouse.org. Haley Bennett's latest film is called Swallow. It's about a young wife who is struggling with a toxic relationship and a traumatic past. The writer and director of the film, Carlos Mirabella Davis, based the story on his own grandmother. She was institutionalized for obsessive behavior, but was also a victim of abuse. In the case of Bennett's character, named Hunter, she suffers from a psychological disorder known as pica. Bennett not only starred in the film, she was also an executive producer. When I spoke with her, we started with the definition of her character's condition. Pika is, um, it's not unusually rare, and it is quite prevalent in pregnant women. But it is considered a condition where uh, people eat things that have absolutely no nutritional value, um, metal, mattress stuffing, rocks. Um, I I did do some research on uh, pica. I mean, after I, when I first read the script, I was I was shocked, and I, I had never heard of pica before. I was shocked. I was disgusted. <laughs> I was I was excited and really interested in this subject. So I started doing some research on pica. 
And in fact, when I met Carlo, I brought him some of these videos, like amazed by this pica. And there was this woman who would eat these rocks and just the crunching sound of the rocks. And and I just started envisioning the film and already envisioning like the, the sound design and um, and and this visceral feeling that you get when um, when somebody eats something unnatural, especially when they're pregnant um, and it, it's possibly harmful to the baby. Um, and so it was really, really evocative in that way and 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 um, and really fascinating. I want to ask you about the first conversations you had with your writer and director, Carlo Marabella Davis. Yes. What was the nature of the conversation about how this story was important to him and yes. what he wanted to say? So Carlo is a really interesting one. This is Carlo's first feature film, so there was no real reference as to what what this film would be like, or if he could even make a film. But he's definitely a director to watch, and I think an auteur in the making. Um, he really impressed us with his aesthetic confidence. He just had this passion and this explosive excitement to tell this story about his grandmother. It's inspired by his grandmother, who was institutionalized for obsessive hand washing and so f- these different forms of control and and I just thought he was really interesting and um and I really at that point was considering making the film when I decided to make the film I thought it was really important that I take on more of a role than just actor and so we collaborated in a, a, a little different way than I was ever used to collaborating I serve as an executive producer on the film and so in this kind of wonderfully symbiotic moment, I was, I guess, in a way, the process met the content. And this story and this film really represents me finding my voice as a, um, as a collaborator in this beautiful medium. It's, um, it's really exciting. It's really, it's really amazing. I want to ask you more about that idea of finding your voice. Is it that You've never had the opportunity, or people aren't interested. Oh, this or... one's tricky. Um, I mean, I've spent most of my career being told what to wear, where to stand, and from what angle that I look my most attractive. And I was never really encouraged to use my voice. Um, and so, and when I did, I was often patronized. And that really, and of course, I was young and in you know in my twenties. I'm in my early thirties now, um, so I've grown up a lot. But um, yeah, I was never really encouraged to, and so I I believed that that was my worth, and I think that that is another reason why this uh, film was so important to me and so personal, was because. Like I said, the process met the content and all of a sudden I'm doing these things that I didn't know that I could do or that I was capable of doing and I was terrified of doing. And that's really the most important thing is like taking control of one's life. And that is what Hunter is doing in this in this kind of bizarre, destructive way. Uh, she's struggling to to find control and to regain control of her life. The hospital sent over a report detailing the contents of your stomach. It said you swallowed a battery. It's just so not a big deal. A needle, a rock, a battery. Why those objects? I don't know. It made me feel. Do you feel out of control? There's a lot of anger, I think, to the film as well. I mean, it's quite 
you know, anarchist in that way. And, you know, I've spoken to a lot of people that have seen the film and they are actually rooting for her to swallow those objects. One of the things that seems intentional in the film is that your character's disorder is not meant to entertain the audience. It is to try to externalize what she's feeling internally, that Absolutely. you're not going to marginalize it by making Absolutely. it kind of horrific. And I think that was something that Carlo handled really, really well, is because it was never um, cheapened, I guess, or or used as something. You know, it is alarming, and it is terrifying to experience, but it's it's definitely more rooted in emotion. And, you know, even when, for instance, Hunter was swallowing the thumbtack, we talked about how that would be shot and with Kate, uh, our cinematographer, and it was very much you're engrossed in her emotional experience rather than this physical experience. We're talking with actor and producer Haley Bennett about her film Swallow. I want to play another scene from the film. This is a conversation you're having with your husband who's played by Austin Stolo. What are you so happy about? I'm proud of myself. I did something unexpected today. What? You promise you won't laugh if I tell you? Promise? I won't laugh. Uh... The drapes. I chose sky blue drapes for the theater. Oh, cool. It's not so unexpected. You sure that's the right color, though? Sounds a little hipster. She can't tell her husband the things that are most important to her, and her husband, quite honestly, has no interest in the things that are most important to her. Absolutely. Um... I mean, I think Hunter, you know, going into a backstory or thinking about a backstory, chose a partner that couldn't really see her or wouldn't see her so that she could avoid contact with these things that she was really uncomfortable with. You know, you, this fear of intimacy. I think Hunter had a real fear of intimacy. And so she chose someone who was completely incapable of intimacy. And um, and also the film explores this kind of patriarchal family and their control over. So she kind of designed her life to... She betrayed herself by, by designing her life in this way to where she didn't have to connect. And yet the more things she ingests, the more happy she becomes, that that is her power. And you mentioned that audiences, rather than rooting kind of for her to stop, see her getting more agency in some ways by the things that she's able to do in an odd way to hurt herself. And that's what I found so fascinating is is this kind of liberation through this uh, horrific experience. When this movie was coming out, you put out a message on Instagram. You said, never has there been a more relevant film for our times. And there's some plot details that I won't give away. But what do you think this film has to say about patriarchy, about women having ownership over their bodies, uh, in a broader context, especially as we're having you know very spirited discussions today about abortion rights and about women's access to equal pay and equity and and jobs. So earlier we were discussing um, the fact that I was never really encouraged to use my voice, and I kind of allowed that to happen. And through through this experience, I've I've found my voice, and also I was pregnant 
when I when I did this movie, and I have a 12-month-old now. So you were filming this while you were I pregnant. I was pregnant, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is not a spoiler. Your character is pregnant in the film. I think that happens yeah. very early on. I mean, it, I'm a method actor. <laughs> I'm a real method actor. I had to get pregnant. Um, no, um, no, no. But as your I, body's changing, as, body as, changing. You're, as you're pregnant, and, and no your one mind knew. is changing. I, oh, I, you knew, I, I hope. I did not reveal to anyone. I did know. I discovered that I was pregnant the day before filming. Um, and so also this film is kind of, you know, I, I did it for her. I do it for I do it for the ladies. Um, and that just, you know, the fact that when I watch the film, I know that she was in my tummy is really amazing. But being pregnant changes so yeah, much it, your relationship to your body. Does that help the performance in a way that this character... I, was, I don't know if it helped that I was <laughs> in my first trimester vomiting and puking and sweating and <laughs> emotional mess and tired um us women have to go through a lot <laughs> and i couldn't tell anybody that you know those are the reasons that i was that i was behaving that way <laughs> but it's 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 a wild it's a wild thing and i i do feel lucky that i was pregnant during that time cuz yeah i think it 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 did it did help Haley Bennett is a producer and actor in Swallow. Haley, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. Swallow is out in theaters starting today. Up next on The Frame, a band with close ties to South Los Angeles that's still going strong after half a century. I've been watching. Support comes from Pasadena Playhouse, presenting One of the Good Ones. The ultimate family showdown is on in the world premiere of this new comedy commissioned by the Tony Award-winning theater. When the perfect Latina daughter brings her boyfriend home to meet the parents, her family's biases and preconceptions are put on full display. Meet your new favorite family in this laugh-out-loud, heartfelt story from Gloria Calderon Kellett, the co-creator and showrunner of Netflix's One Day at a Time. Now through April 7th, tickets are on sale now at PasadenaPlayhouse.org. For nearly four decades, until his death in 1998, composer, pianist, and bandleader Horace Tapscott led the Pan-African People's Orchestra. It's a freewheeling ensemble of musicians dedicated to making music for, about, and with the South L.A. community. More than 20 years after Tapscott's passing, the ARC is as active as ever, thanks to the release of newly discovered material. And the group's traditions are being passed down from generation to generation. Here's more from Frame contributor Stephen Cuevas. The Pan-African People's Orchestra rang in the new year with one of the highest profile gigs in its six-decade history, headlining the city of L.A.'s annual New Year's Eve party at Grand Park. It's a long way from the 1960s, when founding members lived communally in a rambling Lemert Park house dubbed Quagmire Manor. The ARC mostly bypassed the mainstream club circuit, choosing instead alternate venues to better reach the community. Parks, churches, schools. They saw the togetherness and what it was about. Orchestra founder Horace Tapscott spoke to jazz historian Steve Isoardi in 1993 for a series of interviews that are now part of the UCLA Library Special Collections Archive. First, we was the wild band, the posse walking in, because everywhere we went, the whole group would be with me. Once I saw the arc, you saw men and women in the band, you saw lots of horns, 
two three bass players, a couple of drummers, dancers, and they had a choir. They was all playing on the same spiritual level, which was incredible. Saxophonist Michael Session is one of the ARC's longest serving members, joining in the mid-1970s. You came out of there feeling so strong you could pull down the telephone poles. power that attracted Session also drew members of the Black Panther Party and other so-called radicals. So, as Tapscott recalled in 1993, it wasn't unusual to have undercover cops also hanging around. I get on the microphone and say something or play something, and people would get up and understand and dance to it or stop doing what they were doing because we said something. That's all I was saying. I wasn't thinking about fighting nobody. I was thinking about getting my people educated enough and, and, and respect to each other again. Profits were never really a priority, so Tapscott relied on session work, solo gigs, and his wife's county job to make ends meet. Early on in his career, Tapscott was on track to become one of the leading lights of avant-garde jazz. He was on the up escalator in the jazz world. Jazz historian Steve Isoardi is the author of Songs of the Unsung, the musical and social journey of Horace Tapscott. He says a dispute over the production of his debut album soured Tapscott on the music business. He was fed up with what he said, the lack of respect for black music and artists, the way the black artists were treated commercially. He felt the music was being dictated and driven by commercial needs and demands, and he decides to commit himself to home and building a community movement. Tapscott would go on to mentor and jam alongside some of the greatest L.A. jazz musicians of the past 50 years. When Michael Session joined the ARC in the 1970s, he took over for Arthur Blythe. Years before he passed away, Tapscott dropped by to see Session while he was rehearsing. I mean, he says, uh, I had a talk with the spirits last night. The direction of the ARC depends on you. And uh, he just turned around and left. It wasn't exactly an order, it was more of a premonition, because the arc would carry on under Tapscott's direction until he suffered a stroke in the late 1990s. We planned on uh, doing a benefit concert. The day of the concert, he dies. Michael Session would guide the arc into the 2000s until another premonition, this time from his young son, drummer Michaela Session. He said, hey, after you guys go... I'm taking this Horace Tapscott music on. I want to play as much as possible, as often as possible, and and actually like pay my musicians so they can make a living off of this. These days, the orchestra is part of a fertile South L.A. music scene with musicians who came of age with hip-hop and EDM. There's Stephen Ellison, better known as Flying Lotus, and the acclaimed tenor saxophonist Kamasi Washington, who served a stint with the orchestra and now performs to packed auditoriums across the globe. That, that's what I'm saying, man. Kamasi Washington is the dream. Like, I literally met him when I was 13, 14, because he was just in the art. Like, he used to have the same church gig with my dad every Sunday, and I get to watch him and all his homies go around the world playing their music the dream yeah man session aims to steer the arc into a recording studio soon and also get it touring outside the la area a series of unheard arc recordings are also seeing the light of day including last year's album why don't you listen 
which captures one of Tapscott's final live performances nearly 40 years after he launched the Ark's endless journey. For The Frame, I'm Stephen Cuevas. And that'll do it for today. Remember to tune in to The Frame Weekend. You can hear it Saturday afternoon at 2. Thanks to Taylor McFerrin, who supplies our opening theme music. I'm John Horn. We're back here Monday from the Moen Broadcast Center. Have a great weekend. Hey, it's Brian, the host of the How to LA podcast. How about we go to the movies? Join us for a 10-part series, Revival House, and discover the magic of LA's indie theaters. Who knows? You might meet someone. I know it sounds antithetical because you're just sitting passively, but in fact, you're connecting with everyone else around you. Subscribe to How to LA from LA Studios wherever you listen to podcasts.